BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Three, two, one. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show. And I've been really waiting for this uh, bonus interview ever since I got a, uh, a certain email for a certain someone who's in this room uh, telling me about a certain book he wrote about a certain political figure uh, that I wrote about many, many, many years ago when I was a young man. Ah, yes. I was just newly arrived in the city of Chicago. And uh, I wrote a, uh, a profile about a congressman named Sidney R. Yates and the gentleman in uh, the studio have just written a book about Sidney R. Yates and so I'm going to allow my guests to introduce themselves starting with this young man right across from me right here and I'm Michael Dorf a little more than a little that, more. Michael. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, nice to meet you. Yeah. Honest man. Oh, yeah, he's an honest man. You are a... I, I'm an election lawyer. I, uh, I worked for Sid Yates uh, during the uh, Carter and Reagan administrations, and I stayed as his uh, campaign chairman and his lawyer uh, till his death. Okay. By the way, he's being modest when he says an election lawyer. This is the guy that went after Madigan, the kid that was running against Madigan's alderman. So he's, he's pretty well known in the election law business. And this young man to my, what is this, my right? I guess this is my right. Your name and uh, your occupation. Tell folks a little bit about yourself. Sure. I'm George Van Dusen, mayor of the village of Skokie. Uh, Mike and I worked together with Yates. Mike was on the D.C. staff. I worked for him for 26 years uh, back in the district. Back in the day. All right. Great experience. All right. So I will now help my younger listeners out a little bit. Uh, Sidney R. Yates is a name that's pretty much been forgotten by time. Uh, by uh, here in the city of Chicago, where he was such a powerhouse. He was a congressman from the 9th Congressional District, the north side of Chicago, and into the suburbs. Uh, And the book that Michael Dorff and George Van Dusen have written is called Clear It with Sid, Sidney R. Yates, and 50 Years of President's pragmatisms and public service so i'll uh i'll start with you michael uh talk a little bit about uh, sydney yates like sort of his legacy his general legacy well sid yates uh, represented uh, illinois and chicago in congress for 48 years mm-hmm. uh, he uh he started out as a uh, as a young young liberal he ended up as one of the most powerful people in congress chairman of one of the appropriation subcommittees uh, and these people were called the cardinals of the congress because they they uh, controlled billions of dollars of federal spending mm-hmm. he was an uh, incredible champion for the environment uh, for human rights for civil rights for uh, uh, the arts and humanities, where he became uh, very, very famous for saving the National Endowment for the Arts. Uh, he also was the senior Jewish member of Congress, and presidents from uh, Jerry Ford to Jimmy Carter to Bill Clinton 
would come to him uh, for advice on any matter dealing with, with Jewish issues. And in fact, the title of the, of the book, Clear It With Sid, comes from a quote by Tip O'Neill, the former Speaker of the House, who when anybody would come to, uh, to O'Neill <laughs> and say, you know, uh, what, what should we do yeah. about, about, about this to do with, with Israel or the Jews? He'd say, well, clear it with Sid first and then come back to me. That's amazing. Uh, and George, so when did you meet Sid Yates? Do you remember? Yeah, I remember very well. Uh, I was a graduate student, 1968. I had worked on Eugene McCarthy's campaign okay. in Racine, Wisconsin. Okay. I was back in school went over to the opening of the Yates re-election campaign, didn't know who Yates was, but a fellow by the name of George McGovern oh, was speaking. Okay. Yeah. And I wanted to see McGovern. I was studying history. McGovern was a PhD in history and a U.S. senator. Mm-hmm. I went over. I was so impressed with Yates that I volunteered to work on his campaign. And then in 72, the campaign hired me to be on the re-election staff and then hired me uh, when the campaign ended, and I worked with him until January of 1999. Uh, and uh, January of 1999, when did he step, when did he leave Congress? That was a January, January 99. Yeah. yeah, okay. All right, so let's break this out. I happen to know a little bit about Sidney Yates. As I said earlier, I wrote uh, two stories uh, uh, largely about well, one profile of Sidney Yates in the '80s I wrote, and then later in 1990 I have it. Uh, uh, Michael was so kind to give it to me; I'd completely forgotten this. Why is this man running? It's really a profile of Edwin Eisendrath, the rookie alderman from All Lincoln Park, who dared to challenge Sidney Yates in a Democratic primary. Uh, obviously, Edwin wasn't listening to my advice um, and back in that. So let's just—I'm gonna—I have like these three categories. Uh, like parables, if you will, or Sidney Yates's life sort of has, in my opinion, a greater resonance that would make it even important today that people study and know him uh, and realize what um, some of the same issues as he was dealing with are very much alive with us today. So let's start with uh, uh, the first one, which is his introduction to politics. And my memory is, it's been a while, uh, uh, George and Michael, my memory is that Sidney R. Yates, even though he became the epitome of the Democratic congressman who was uh, so powerful that Tip O'Neill said, you got to clear it with Sidney, uh, started off as an independent in Chicago uh, politics. He was running against the entrenched organization. This is impossible for uh, a lot of people to under, to, to realize. But way back when, I want to say it was about, he was born in 1909. I'm doing this from memory. So it would have been about 1940. Do I have? 1939. 39. Come on, man, there's no notes or anything. I'm doing this from memory. Uh, Talk about that first campaign that Sidney Yates ran. Well, at that time, he's gotten out of law school. He had been a... uh, uh, all-American second-team uh, uh, basketball player at, at the University yeah. of Chicago when the University of Chicago still was in the Big Ten. Uh, got out of law school, was practicing law, and uh, had, the, had the itch, had the itch to, to, to run for alderman and uh, ran in, in the 46th Ward on a progressive ticket. Uh, they were trying to beat the machine. There was a, an absolutely crooked state's attorney at, at the time, and, and so he was part of this slate uh, to, 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 to beat the machine, and uh, in a field of three, came in third, got absolutely killed, <laughs> yeah. and, and the, uh, the, the um, 
committeeman of the uh, 46th Ward, a guy named Joe Gill, mm-hmm. um, just shot him down. And for the rest of Yates's career, and Joe Gill was there for many, many years after he was in Congress, Joe Gill loved nothing more than to talk about how he beat Yates in 39 and that Yates would never even become in Congress if he hadn't been uh, helped, if he finally hadn't joined the machine. Well, my memory is, uh, George, and correct me if my memory is wrong, it's been a while, that Sidney Yates uh, went to Joe Gill's headquarters the night he lost the uh, the election mm-hmm. and said, you beat me, I want to join you. Do I have that correct? Pretty, pretty much so. Uh, he did try to work his way in, but Gill wasn't the type to... Uh, What's the what's Rack, the name of uh, Milton Rakoff's Milton Rakoff. <laughs> we don't want we nobody, don't want nobody, nobody sense. Sense. Yeah. And Joe Gill was the epitome of that. And Gill never forgave Yates for running. Uh, in 48, when the committee when were trying to find a candidate after their candidate quit in the middle of the campaign, mm-hmm. uh, at f- most of the committeemen wanted Yates because he was young, willing to do it, and they didn't think he would win anyway. Truman wasn't supposed to win, and they had Stevenson and Douglas at the top of the ticket. They, didn't, they weren't expected either. And Gill was resistant, but finally Gill came around and just said, what the hell? <laughs> he wants to run. He's going to get beat again. Yeah. And then, of course... Uh, uh, Stevenson led the ticket. Douglas came in a close second, won the Senate seat. Yates surprised everybody. And later, whenever Yates was asked, how do you get to Congress? Uh-huh. Uh, he would always say, the formula is pretty simple. Run on a ticket with Truman, Stevenson, and Douglas. And <laughs> just go along. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it worked. For, yeah, and, 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 and in all those yeah. years, all those years, <clears throat> nobody in the Yates office ever talked about the 1939 election. Uh, it's one of the things we learned about when we started researching the book that he had lost this election and lost Is it so right? big, and they never ever talked about it. I, I and, once went to our chief of staff. Uh-huh. The most marvelous uh, woman you would ever want to meet, Mary Bain. And I had not been on the staff very long, and I just said, Mary, um, is it true that the congressman once ran for Alderman? And she just stopped me in mid-sentence and said, we don't talk about that, honey. Wow. I, I, I got to tell you, my memory, and again, memory is a funny thing. Uh, the first article I did in Sydney Yates would have been somewhere in the 80s. That's how old I am, George. And uh, I remember going to his office and talking to him about because I, I did a clip check and I, you know, I found this article. And I, I didn't, uh, I don't recall him having any difficulty uh, talking about it. Uh, and I remember him saying that he went there on election night. Uh, and th- the message I took away is that Sidney Yates was a pragmatic guy, a practical guy, very different than me. Uh, I will just continue bang my head against a wall (laughs) until I have dented my head. Uh, But he was quick to realize that he could not defeat the Chicago Democratic machine. And so if he wanted a future in politics, he had to make some sort of reconciliation with that machine, and he did uh, 
very quickly and well, benefited from it. One of the things that I found fascinating is we were doing the research. Uh, we knew Yates uh, after he had become chairman. He had, was experienced, a uh, master legislator. When we went back, what we discovered was that Jake Arvey, mm -hmm. uh, Cook County Democratic Party chairman, and his father-in-law, A. Paul Holub, were close friends, and they kind of helped uh. promote Yates, particularly in 48. Arvey put the Stevenson-Douglas ticket together and wanted to try and promote young liberals yeah. at the top of the ticket to carry the wards and the county ticket. And even as Yates went on in his career, he managed to have an, sort of a, an alliance with the Democratic Party locally. Uh, you let me do my job in Washington. I'll bring money back to the city. But I'm a liberal on civil rights and housing and these kinds of things. And he was pregnant. That's part of the title of the book. All right. Now, you, you've just, without realizing, moved right into where I was going to go. You read my mind. I guess I'm easy to read. And uh, I, I think of Sid Yates when I write and talk about the relationship between congressmen from districts in Chicago and politics that exist in Chicago. Michael Dorf probably knows what I'm talking about here very clearly. I've always objected to Chicago congressmen or been critical of them that they ignore local politics in Chicago. George, you're in Skokie, so you're not part of these fights. But Michael knows what I'm talking about. There are big fights in the city of Chicago, local political fights having to do with sweeping issues that really concern Democrats uh, on a national scale. Everything from civil rights to like a, even environmental protection or how much environment, you know, how we spend our money, uh, whether we're fair or equitable. And the congressmen traditionally that come out of Chicago stay out of that. And it's, 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 it's sort of what George is saying. I'm going to go to Congress, I'll blast Trump, I'll blast Nixon, I'll blast who else is Reagan, I'll champion civil rights legislation, but when it comes to the city of Chicago and what other dailies up to, I'm going to look the other way. And that's always been uh, sort of my objection about Chicago congressmen. And to me, to a certain degree, uh, Sidney Yates set the model for that. He stayed out of conf conflicts and confrontation on a local level, and that left him free, he would argue, to pursue a liberal agenda uh, in Washington. Am I being unfair to Sidney Yates when I criticize him for avoiding conflict in Chicago, Michael Dorf? Well, I, I don't think you're being un unfair to him. The, probably the, the, the biggest um, example of, of what happened was in 1975, when uh, Richard J. Daley was, was running for re-election against um, uh, Bill Singer, who was the alderman, the very independent and liberal alderman of the 43rd Ward. And, and I, I think um, Bill expected that, that, that Sid Yates, as the, the congressman of the, the Lakefront Liberals, uh, who had the 30, 43rd Ward in the district, was going to support him over uh, uh, Dick Daley. And, and Yates didn't. Yates supported supported daily, and I think is because of, of 
the point that Ben that you make. Yates was a pragmatist. He was a great, great liberal, but he was also a pragmatist, and, and he didn't believe in a lot of uh, Don Quixote lost causes. Um, well, Bill, he had run one. Although he, yes. he had, right, he had, right, he had, <laughs> he had learned he had, from he, that he had, lesson. He, yeah, he had, he had learned. Yeah, and and uh, uh, certainly Bill Singer never never forgave him for that. Well, we'll get to that, but yeah. Uh, so, but but I but I, I I'm going to go a little further. Um, I'm not sure it's it, it's as much today because um and and as you said full full dis, full disclosure, um, among my clients are uh, um, Robin Kelly, uh, Con- Congressman Robin Kelly, and, and Con- Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy, and Congressman Sean Caston, and uh, a, a, few, a few others, and and. They've been involved. They've been coming back to Chicago a lot because there's there's been, especially with the, the immigration crisis and, and the things that Trump is doing, there is much, much more of a relationship between things that are going on in the city and things that are going on in, in Washington. And, and I think they're taking a much more active role. Now, now whether they're getting involved in the mayoral races yeah, well, that's is, what I'm is, saying. is yeah. another, yeah. another question. Yeah, no, listen, no congressman would be reluctant to use Chicago as a, a convenient backdrop uh, to join the progressive movement in a fight against Donald Trump, let's say, on his uh, insane immigration uh, policies and issues. So, well, I'm talking about something a little specifically like, let's say, uh, no congressman from the city of Chicago would have uh, would spoke out against Richard M. Daley when he was at the height of his uh, corruption uh, scandals in that that term from 2003 to 2007. In fact, Rahm Emanuel came back to Chicago and delayed, Rahm Emanuel, who was at the time a congressman from the 5th Congressional District, came back to Chicago and delivered a speech, I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, where he exonerated Daly. <laughs> How anybody can exonerate Daly during that period. So my point is, is that they stay out of local fights with powerful mayors, uh, and I think that's a lesson. I, 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 I think that, 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 is, that is true, and uh, I, I was always amazed that, that people who would leave Congress to run for aldermen because they thought that was there was more action there. And uh, we, we, of course, uh, thought Congress is the place to be. Yeah, uh, I think Roman. Or did become the head of the uh, Chicago Park District. Well, uh, all right, George, let me ask you this. Uh, do you think uh, that uh, there was a, a, a virtue to what Sidney Yates was doing, or was it just a, the most practical, pragmatic thing uh, to avoid those local fights so that you could be free to do what you want to do in Washington? I do, but I, I think he knew regular Democrats from the early days, Jake Harvey. Uh, even if, if you go back and look at Paul Douglas, nobody in the U.S. Senate was more liberal than Paul Douglas. And Douglas made his peace with the Chicago Democratic machine. Mm-hmm. He had been an independent alderman. He, he won in 39. He was part of the larger slate of independents. Uh, of course, he went off during the Second World War uh, to become a Marine. Yates went into the Navy. But they all made their peace with the machine. And part of it, I think, is because it was pre-Daily. They knew Jake RV and a lot of, uh, like Abe, Abe Sabbath, who really was Yates' father in the Congress. He was chairman of the House Rules Committee. He was an immigrant, senior Jew in the, in the Congress at, at the time and took Yates under his wing. So I think the combination of having lost in 39, 
and then uh, becoming very close friends with Paul Douglas and seeing RV and his father-in-law, A. Paul, he didn't have that attitude that these are evil men. He just looked upon them as local, practical politicians with whom he could make peace. And as long as they left him alone and let him be the champion uh, of civil rights, uh, he was one of the earliest champions in the Congress of Japanese-American naturalization. His first speech on the floor of the House championed a bill that, in fact, was successful and he had helped author. They left him alone. Uh, Although there is a story about Joe Gill. Um, After Yates had become become congressman, and it was during the early 50s, uh, the anti-communism and everything that was sweeping the country. And uh, Yates was having breakfast uh, at the Belden Deli, mm-hmm. if you, re- yeah, you may Deli, remember yeah. that. Yeah, the Belden Deli, Clark and, Street. Uh, Dunn, Jack Merlot, Yates, Joe Gill, and this was Gill's later days. And they're talking and asking Sidney what's going on in Washington. And they, Gill turns to Yates and says, just once, can't you support the anti-commies? You know, because Yates, Yates, <laughs> Yates had voted to uphold the Truman vetoes oh, yeah. of the old McCarran uh, bills. Uh-huh. And uh, Gill just... He couldn't resist it. Yates said, well, I vote my conscience. Yeah, and in fact, in the 1950, his, his first re-election campaign in 1950, he was, uh, he was being uh, opposed by, by somebody who was very, very anti-communist, pro-Joe McCarthy, and uh, he was just being called a, a commie-crat. Was, a uh, commie-crat. A commie-crat. Wow. All right. Uh, now, uh, before I leave this uh, particular issue, move on to the next one. Uh, Michael, I have to ask you this question. Uh, as I said, Michael Dorff is a very well-known election law lawyer uh, in the city of Chicago, and he's one of the election lawyers who's known for being unafraid to take on a Democratic Party. Uh, you represented that kid whose name I can't remember who was running against the Marty Quinn, uh, Michael Madigan's uh, uh, home alderman over in the 13th Ward. What kind of advice would Sid Yates give to you if he followed your career from where you started off as his aide? And this is a guy who prospered by avoiding fights on the local front and now you're going around taking on michael madigan's <laughs> political machine well I, I i got involved in election law because somebody challenged sid yates's petitions and so uh, uh i i think sid yates would say let people get on the ballot and i don't care whether i agree with them or don't agree with them but they deserve the right to be on the ballot and and it's just it's turned out one of one of the, the, the first victories i ever had in that in election law uh, was uh, mike madigan tried to keep Alexi Janulius off the ballot when Alexi was running for state state treasurer. And we were able to beat that back. And so, um, uh, I mean, I, I, had a, I had a time when I was general counsel of, of the Illinois Democratic Party. It was during that brief period when Mike Madigan was not the chairman. But, <laughs> what was but, the guy's name, LaPel? Uh, yeah, Gary LaPel. Um, but so, so, so people started coming to me who were not uh, 
uh, endorsed by by the machine. And yeah. so one of the people I ended up uh, representing was I, I represented Barack Obama when he was running for Congress against Bobby Rush. Uh. And so I, I became his lawyer when he ran when he ran for the Senate. Uh, yeah, but but yeah, Yates would say people deserve to be on the ballot. Yeah. And, and it doesn't make any sense. You know, win, win it, win it in the ballot box. Let the voters decide, but let the person have a chance to run. Wait, when you uh, 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 represented Janulius to keep him on the ballot, did you defeat Michael Casper? Uh, well, he is that was, the lawyer who was moving to uh, knock Janulius off the ballot. Well, yeah. Well, Mike, Mike, Mike is Mike is an old friend. He's yeah. he's he is, he is, he is a great election lawyer. He's been a good colleague. He's as professional as can be. Uh, but yeah, he he represents the. Uh, but in that, the, in that case, in that yeah, case. you defeated him. Yeah. Uh, we, we we've been friendly rivals on a lot of cases. I bet. Uh, and uh, were you was he the was he the lawyer for the kid in Thirteenth Ward? Uh, he, well, he was the lawyer for the alderman in the 13th Ward. I was uh, the lawyer for the kid. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Against the kid in the 13th yeah. Ward. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's move on to one of my favorite chapters in Sidney Yates' career. And uh, this has to do, uh, it, it's sort of ironic, uh, on the cover of the book, there's a photo of um, Sidney Yates uh, standing with Jay, uh, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, President Kennedy, on the uh, at a boarding the uh, Air Force One, I guess it is, the presidential plane. Uh, and this uh, chapter has to do with the 1962 Senate campaign that Sidney Yates ran. Sidney Yates was a congressman from the 9th Congressional District on the north side of Chicago for 50 years uh, about. And uh, But at one point, he had uh, aspirations for higher office. He decided he was going to uh, run for the United States Senate and challenge a powerhouse in state politics that whose name probably has also been forgotten in history, uh, Michael Dorff, and that would be Everett McKinley Dirksen, who is the incumbent. Talk about the campaign of 1962. Well, Dirksen was the, uh, the, the Senate Republican leader, the, the minority leader of the Senate. Um, Yates uh, had done some polling. He, uh, he was old friends with... Um, Lou Harris, who the famous Harris polls, and and Harris told him that uh, uh, Dirksen was very very vulnerable on domestic issues, because uh, this was the time when when Kennedy was trying to get the new frontier uh, done with with uh, trying to get Medicare adopted, trying to get Civil Rights Acts adopted, and Dirksen was very very unpopular. In addition, there had been a former Governor Yates, who was governor of the state of Illinois during the Civil War, um, that the downstaters remembered. And they didn't think of, J of Yates as a uh, Jewish liberal congressman. They thought of him, oh, yeah, there was a, we remember <laughs> Yates from downstate. Yeah. So, so he, he had support both in, in Cook County and, and downstate. And it, it looked like a, 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 good, a good chance. Mm -hmm. um, and he thought that he would have the support of, 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 his, uh, of his party, party leaders, uh, particularly uh, Kennedy and, and Lyndon Johnson. And it, it goes back a little bit because in, in 1952, John Kennedy and Sid Yates were both congressmen together, and they were part of a group of uh, World War II veterans who used to meet for dinner on Tuesday nights, and they were, they were great friends. Uh, he thought he had a good relationship with Kennedy. In 1952, Kennedy wants to run for the Senate against uh, Henry Cabot Lodge, the, the most uh, Boston Brahmin uh, person you, could, you can imagine. And it turns out that Kennedy is, is doing very badly among uh, Massachusetts Jews, because uh, Kennedy's father, Joe Kennedy, uh, 
was recognized as, as, as anti-Semitic, had been against the United States entering World War II, had said very sympathetic things about, about, about Hitler and the German government. And the Jews in Massachusetts were, were not voting for Kennedy, and they'd rather vote for this, this, this Protestant, Protestant, Protestant Henry Cavett Lodge. So Jack Kennedy calls Sid Yates and says, will you please come out to Massachusetts and campaign for me and tell the Jews out there that I'm okay. And, and, and he does that. And Kennedy, Kennedy wins by only about 75,000 votes in that election. It's a close election. And you know, whether the Jews had anything to do with it, who knows. But certainly, uh, the Jews voted for Kennedy when they weren't voting for him before. Yeah. So 10 years later... Uh, 1962. In 1962, Sid Yates is in Congress wanting to run for the Senate in the same position as Kennedy was 10 years earlier uh, and calls the leader of his party and says, I'm the Democratic nominee. I have supported every single one of your administration proposals. Uh, help me out. Mm -hmm. And Kennedy absolutely screwed him. Yeah. he George finished the story. Kennedy absolutely, I remember this one clear as a bell. Kennedy absolutely screwed him. Go. Well, Kennedy w resisted and resisted and resisted coming out to campaign for him. One excuse after another. Finally, Kennedy decides, okay, I'm going to come out. So he comes to Chicago, goes to uh, Cook County Democratic Organization dinner at McCormick Place. 5,000 attendees, gives a an endorsement of Yates, but says nothing negative about Dirksen. It's all, Yates has supported the new frontier, like Mike was just describing, and then moves on, gets that very famous uh, cold. And the following morning, cancels the rest of his campaigning, returns to Washington, and, of course, it was the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm -hmm. A couple days later, Kennedy makes very public his need for Dirksen. He sends a plane to Chicago to pick Dirksen up and return him to Washington to consult with the president on the Cuban Missile Crisis. Dirksen, being the savvy downstate politician he was, let the news media know. Mm -hmm. They're all out at the airport, and there's a story about Dirksen leaning over to his wife and saying, not, not exactly, so nobody could hear him. I guess the young man needs the old pro's advice. And, of course, he goes back to Washington. And that's in every newspaper in yeah. the state. The young man being President no. John Kennedy. Yes, and the old pro being Everett Dirksen. Go ahead. Exactly. And uh, when Dirksen comes into the meeting at the White House, Kennedy says to him, well, Ev, uh, it looks like you've returned in good style. And Dirksen says, yes, that, that was quite a cold you got, Mr. <laughs> yeah, President. Yeah. In the meeting yeah. with all the legislative leaders, Dirksen supports Kennedy the Democrats, except for J. William Fulbright, all of the Democrats wanted Kennedy to take a more aggressive tone. Uh, Kennedy, is where, is where all well where today, maneuvered it diplomatically, 
we did not fortunately go to nuclear war. And the only major state that the Democrats lost in the Senate that year was Illinois. Mm -hmm. And Lou Harris, who had told Yates that he thought he had a good chance to win, signaled that the turning point came when, when Kennedy screwed Yates uh, using the Cuban Missile yeah, Crisis. Yeah, he had the cold. So follow, uh, folks, if you're trying to follow us at home, uh, Kennedy, instead of uh, flying around, traveling around the state of Illinois with Sidney Yates saying, this is my guy, he helped me when I was running for Senate, I want to help him, I could use Sid Yates' uh, expertise and uh, assistance in the Senate to help me pro- promote my agenda. Instead of doing that, he flew back. He got a cold and left Chicago. He had, a, you know, the sniffles, and he flew out. Of course, the Cuban Missile Crisis, those things were going on. And then, uh, to make matters worse for Sidney R. Yates, uh, he allowed himself to pal around with Everett McKinley Dirksen uh, so that folks would, like, think Dirksen was the aide to Kennedy. And yeah. that Kennedy had his endorsement, uh, or Dirksen had Kennedy's endorsement. So he, he really undercut uh, uh, Sydney Yates. All right, so George, I'm going to take off your Sydney Yates hat and uh, put on your Mayor of Skokie hat. Uh, do, can't you make a strong argument that John Kennedy did the right thing, that he put the national interest above party interest, that we needed a united front uh, to uh, stand as one in this Cuban Missile Crisis, and I need the Republican, uh, the leader of the Senate on my side, uh, couldn't you make that argument that Kennedy did the right thing? You could make the argument, uh, but Yates would have been just as, as much in Kennedy's corner. He was certainly as experienced in the Congress. Uh, yes, Kennedy wanted Republican support, but it wasn't so much the Cuban Missile Crisis as what he didn't want was Hinkenlooper who would have taken Dirksen's place in the Senate. And here you've got 1964 As the leader of the Republicans. As the leader of the Republicans. Mm -hmm. He would have succeeded Dirksen had had Yates won. He was an inveterate anti-Kennedy person. He would have done everything to try and defeat Kennedy in 64. And Kennedy, at least had a working relationship with Dirksen and thought uh, they'll fight with each other on domestic policy, but foreign policy, Dirksen will, will be there for me. Uh, but it really came down to 64, in my opinion. I, I think Kennedy was looking ahead, and he knew he had no legislative record. I mean, the the legislative record of note of that era was Lyndon Johnson, not John Kennedy. And Kennedy would have had a very tough re-election fight in 64. Who knows if Goldwater would have been the nominee of the Republicans had, uh, had Kennedy not been assassinated. Uh, Michael, did Kennedy ever reach out to Sidney Yates to, to say, hey, I'm sorry, man. 
Can you imagine? No, it's like, hey, no. man, sorry. No, ne- ne- yeah. ne- never did. And um, uh, it was uh, Adlai Stevenson who, who really saved uh, Yates's career. Stevenson lobbied the White House. Uh, Stevenson was, was the U.N. ambassador at the time and lobbied the White House to make Yates uh, an ambassador uh, at the United Nations uh, in, the, in the trusteeship council with the rank of ambassador. And that gave Yates uh, a platform for two years until he was able to come back to the House in 64. Well, let's, let's talk about that. Once again, you've led to my, the next little chapter, and that is, uh, follow me in this, folks. He was a sitting congressman. Uh, he gave up his seat in the Congress to run for Senate. And then he had to uh, spend a couple of years uh, with this other position, and then he came back. Now, when you come back, do you lose all your seniority. Am I correct in that? He, he lost all of his seniority except in one place. They were they were going to put him at the bottom of the list in terms of who gets in choosing office space, uh-huh. and uh, <laughs> he he raised absolute hell with with the uh, with the speaker about that, and they they ended up creating something that they they still to this day call the Yates Rule, which says that you're allowed to choose your office space based on your uh, aggregate years of service <laughs> instead of your consecutive okay. years of service, but in ter- in terms of his committees, he went right back to the bottom. Uh, and but he did go back to appropriations. Yeah. All right, but we'll get into uh, how he got back to power in Congress. Uh, did you ever talk to Yates about his attitude toward John Kennedy? Yeah, um, he um, he despised Kennedy. He abs- absolutely despised Kennedy. It was the one thing we, we never... Uh, we, and anybody who praised Kennedy around him uh, would would get would get a look. And one of the things we, we mention in the book um, that really shows it, um, Yates um, never took anything that Staff wrote. He uh, Staff would write drafts. Yates would would, would tear them <laughs> apart. Yeah. Would, always wrote his own things. Uh, the only thing that he 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 didn't do any looking at was an, um, when when Robert Kennedy was assassinated. Mm-hmm. Um, one of his staffers wrote the traditional eulogy that, that members of Congress would would, would, would do. And uh, this, we, we interviewed the staffer from, from 68, and, and he said that he, so he provided this draft to Yates uh, of praising Robert Kennedy. Uh, Yates took one look at it, uh, signed it, and said, throw it in the house hopper. Go do it. You know, go file it. And uh, because he just... He couldn't. He couldn't. He couldn't say a good. He, he couldn't say a good word about any of the candidates, and he's told many people. We interviewed Dick Durbin. We've interviewed many other members of Congress, and he said this was the most painful thing that ever that ever happened to him. And and there is a as you as you point out, you know, you if if you stepped aside and said, okay, let's just look at this purely from you know politics ain't beanbag. Uh, presidents don't, don't get elected unless they're sons of bitches anyway. You got to have some of that in you. Yeah. Loyalty is a one way street. I mean, all of those things. But it really was the 1952 election where Kennedy really did come to him when Kennedy was in the lowest place of, of his play, of his career, yeah. where if he didn't win this race, he was he was gone. Yeah. And he came to Sid Yates and said, I really need your help on an incredibly personal type of matter. Uh, the Jews not trusting me. Yeah. And and I think that, that betrayal uh, changed Yates. And, and when he comes back in 1964, and this is one of the things that George and I really discovered, when he comes back in 64, he is still liberal, he is still the idealist, but... He doesn't do things for people unless they do something for him first. 
because he really uh, was was just so burned. Yeah, we well, figure a guy from Chicago said you grew up in Chicago. You went to Lakeview High School. <laughs> you should know a little something about <laughs> backstabbers. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but I, yeah. I, you know, uh, like I said, he made his peace with the organization. The organization protected him on the local front, so he could have been a con- he could have gone to Congress, George. Year after year, no one was going to beat Sidney R. Yates, and the dailies were going to protect him on the local front. So I guess this was his first real experience with stuff that Michael Dorff deals with all the time, the games that the, the regular well, organization can play. But he also saw it in Congress. Uh, one of the stories we relate in the book is 1960, uh, Yates is in, uh, is in a position to become chairman of an appropriation subcommittee, what they what we call the College of Cardinals, mm-hmm. and he's ready to take the position. And the chairman of the committee eliminates the subcommittee. Just he's a baron, and the only person who could stop the chairman from eliminating the subcommittee is the Speaker of the House, and Sam Rayburn just. He didn't want to have a fight with the chairman of the Appropriations Committee. And Yates was very frustrated. He had bided his time. He had uh, worked the system. He was, by all of the rules, ready now to assume this chairmanship. And they eliminate the committee from out from under him. And that was part of the reason why he decided to roll the dice and uh, take a calculated gamble and run against Dirksen. Mm. Um, so he knew he, he was stabbed in the back by Kennedy. He was stabbed in the back by uh, an appropriations committee chair, and nobody helped him mm. in either incident. incident. So. Uh, it, should he have known? Probably so. I mean, certainly that's what—that's the history of Chicago ward politics. We all know it. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- there's something very admirable about what he did. Uh, he ran a very strong campaign in '62, and but for Kennedy and the, the Cuban Missile Crisis coming up, and Kennedy using it, uh, it Yates would have made a great U.S. senator, uh, just as he was a, a great U.S. Uh, representative. Yeah. You know, it's funny, I just, when you're doing this history, I'm thinking about uh, a, a, a Jewish politicians from Chicago who were betrayed by national uh, politicians uh, who are not Jewish. Uh, you got Sidney R. Yates, and then like a year later, Arthur Goldberg, who was a Supreme Court justice, this just popped in my mind, somehow or other allowed himself <laughs> to be talked out of his Supreme Court seat by LBJ. I don't know if you guys know this story. And he, mm-hmm. you know, he left the Supreme Court uh, and LBJ, I really need you at the United Nations. You know what I'm saying? And it's like, dude, why would you give up a Supreme Court justice seat? Man, just. And Goldberg was a Chicago. Yes, that's just what I said. He was a labor. Yeah, yeah, he was a labor. Yeah, and grew up on Maxwell Street. And LBJ uh, 
also worked against Yates in 62. We we found a... Um, uh, There's a big surprise. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> LBJ was pals with Dirksen. <laughs> he was pals with Dirksen. Yeah. We, we found in, in the Johnson Library, they, they've... Um, uh, they've digitized all of the White House tapes for okay. when Johnson was president. And, and so we, we found a phone call between Johnson and Ev Dirksen where um, Johnson says, and, and some of the Kennedy people came to me and said, should we back Sid Yates? And I said it would be a national tragedy if Ev Dirksen wasn't in the Senate. Wow. And so John, uh, Johnson worked against him. Mike Mansfield, who was the Senate Democratic leader at the time, worked against Yates because he wanted to keep Dirksen in there as well. Yeah, they were all working. By the way, in a totally separate matter, just it, 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 folks, if you get an opportunity, you could find it on YouTube, the phone conversation between LBJ and Everett Dirksen uh, when uh, Hubert Humphrey's running for president in 1968. George, you should come listen to this. It's really unbelievable. Dirk Johnson tells Dirksen that Nixon, uh, who is running against him, committed treason. He knows he's committed treason because yeah. he's secretly back-channeling negotiations uh, in Par- to undercut the Paris peace talks uh, to try to turn South Vietnam against the, the peace talks and get them to slow down. I say the same thing happened uh, in with Trump and Putin and, uh, you know, uh, in 2016. But uh, I urge everybody. And that's the kind of relationship that Dirksen, that Yates was running against, had with powerful Democrats. He was friends with them. And uh, he used it to his advantage against Sidney Yates. Uh, all right, let's move on to the next phase that I want to talk about. And this has to do with his second stint in Congress from 1964 until he retired in 98 when he decided not to run for re-election. Nobody was ever going to beat him. Uh, and that's when he accumulated all of his power as a master manipulator of the budget process. Uh, Michael, talk about that. Uh, how Sidney Yates used his power in Washington to become a big promoter, defender, uh, and the sponsor, a financer of really of the arts. Well, he he became chairman of uh, one one of the appropriation subcommittees. It was called the uh, subcommittee on the Department of Interior and related agencies. So this was uh, billions of dollars. All of the programs of the Department of Interior, about half of the programs of the Department of Energy, programs in the Agriculture Department, uh, programs. Uh, in, in, the, in the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and all of the federal cultural programs, the National Endowments for the Arts and Humanities, the Smithsonian Institution, the National uh, Gallery of Art. And people kept trying to pull the arts out of his jurisdiction and give it to education, which, which seemed like a better, a better fit. And Yates said, I want to keep these agencies because um, the arts and our artists our natural resources of our country the same way our, nat- our national parks are and our national forests are. And this was a very, very high-minded thing, and it sounded really good. But the real reason Yates wanted to keep the arts in his committee is so he would have something to trade. If, if you're in a zero-sum game mm-hmm. uh, where, you know, if you give money to one thing, you got to take it away from somebody else, if, if, if the arts are with education, it's the same constituencies. Uh, everybody's for the same stuff. But... If you've got the arts against fish hatcheries and the arts against public lands, then you've got something you can trade against the Senate. And what, what, what Yates did is that um, uh, the, the Western state senators who made up the uh, subcommittee on the, sen- on the Senate side uh, couldn't care less about the arts. Arts were dirty pictures to them. Um, but what they did want was free and subsidized grazing land for their, uh, their, their ranchers. And 
Yates uh, controlled the Bureau of Land Management, which controlled one third of the United States' as fe federal lands. And uh, so he abolished subsidies for, for Western ranchers uh, because the Senate was going to abolish the National Endowment for the Arts. And the senators had to decide whether they were, uh, uh, how, how much they cared that Jesse Helms was saying the Arts Endowment was, was pornographic and mm -hmm. government didn't have a place in the arts. And the Senate gave in to him. Uh, it, it actually be, it became known as the uh, the corn for porn trade, hmm. uh, trading public lands for the arts endowment. <laughs> but but Yates understood the importance of the arts yeah. to the American people. Yeah. Well, and I but I I <laughs> think one of the things that yeah. we do bring out. And by the way, Mike Mike is being he's talking about being an election attorney. He actually is one of the most well known arts attorneys as well. Uh, and he was the arts guy in our staff. Uh, so he's speaking from uh, per first person original sourcing. But uh, one of the things that Yates did is he took a look at the arts as a political interest group. And if you'd ever, in the period, if you'd talk to the heads of museums and art galleries and other arts organizations, the theaters, they, they would have shuddered to think that we're part of this political appropriations process, trading mass transit for <laughs> payments in lieu yeah. of taxes or something. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I think what he did is he taught them, you survive by using the political process. And part of that is trading. You, you trade and survive your interest versus the others. And he, he was a master at that. And I think that it helped the arts grow up an awful lot. What do you they, mean? I think they, they kind of thought that they existed in this rarefied vacuum mm -hmm. where we're not subject to the normal political process that, say, like the arts... I mean that the uh, the Western congressman understood. Mm -hmm. uh, Yates was the first urban congressman to be chairman of this subcommittee, mm -hmm. and he changed it. Uh, he created the urban parks, urban forestry programs, and he he understood though that he could use it to trade with others. Uh, for example, uh, it, Governor Jim Thompson would come to Washington, would meet with Yates, and he would need money for the RTA. Yates would get in touch with the chairman of the Appropriations Subcommittee on Transportation, and he'd say, uh, we, need, we need money for the RTA in Chicago. What do you need? And usually they would say, well, we want to enlarge... Uh, the national lakeshore in Indiana, mm -hmm. the Indiana Dunes. Yeah. And Yates would say, well, that's my subcommittee. Uh, we'll add money to uh, buy additional property, but you've got to help me with the RTA. Uh, that's how the Cardinals worked. And as Mike just described, that's how he saved the arts. But I also think he taught them mm -hmm 
how the that they were part of this political process. When you say process. cardinals, that's the nickname that was given to the chairs of these various powerful committees. They were cardinals, and they would uh, wheel and deal and, and, and swap favors. This has happened in, con- in the Congress to this uh, day, Michael, or we've come, have we lost this tradition? Well, one, one of the things that, that we talk about in the book, and, and uh, we, we think is, is a very misguided reform that the Congress did a few years ago was to eliminate earmarks. Uh, and, and, you know, ear, and earmarks uh, where, where you say we're going we're to appropriate money for a specific project and, and um, instead of letting the agency or the department decide on, on their own. Uh, earmarks kept the process going. They greased the wheels. They allowed for these types of favors to be traded. They also allowed for uh, some discipline to be imposed upon upon the members of Congress. Uh, if you want to bring money back to your district, you got to go along with some other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, uh, there is a movement to bring back earmarks. They don't call them earmarks anymore. They call it directed spending. Ah, I see. But, yeah. uh, but we, we really think that that's one of the things which, which could bring a little more uh, collegiality back to Congress. And, uh, and members of Congress, I think, know, know better what their districts need certainly than than uh, the office of management and budget does all right well you uh, you sound like me arguing against doing away with automatic prerogative in the city of chicago there but i'm i don't know if you agree with me in that point we'll save that for another uh discussion but uh listening to you just now sound i'm like oh my god that's like me saying hey let the alderman have the handle the zoning not someone named bureaucrat in city hall uh all right now let's move on to what i find uh for personal reasons a fascinating chapter uh in the sydney eight story and, and i say it's for personal reasons because i wrote a story about it and, and uh, like i said michael was happy nice enough to give a copy of I me mean, it's a long story uh as back in the day when the reader really let us go uh and it had to do in 1990 yeah 1990 a young uh, alderman by the name of edwin eisendrath old friend of mine uh decided it would be a good idea to run for congress against uh, Sidney R. Yates, who was then in the second stint, I'm doing the math in my head, it's always a little dangerous, uh, 26 years. He was in a second stint, so it was 26 years in, had all this power, had spent the 1980s thwarting attempts by Reagan and the right to uh, deny funding for arts groups uh, because they were insulted by some of the more outrageous uh, public art displays, public publicly funded arts display so he was this hero to arts people he was was this really well-known name uh in chicago he daily wasn't going to help anybody uh, baby daily the kid daily who was right the mayor at the time was going to work against him and edwin ran against him um george talk about that campaign that was really the last great challenge that sydney yates had politically well if i remember right yates was 80 at the time and uh, as maybe you remember Alan Griman. 81, I want it, whatever. 80 is fine, good enough, yeah. He was in his 80s. Yeah, yeah, Alan uh, Griman. And uh, Alan Griman used to always say to me that more people went on Medicare waiting for Yates to retire. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Eisendrath, young man, thought that he could catch Yates by surprise. And I don't think he anticipated that Yates would campaign for re-election. Uh, other than the 82 campaign, when Yates did campaign, I, we were talking before about Catherine Bettini challenging him, uh, he campaigned. 
uh, it was a new district in 82, 1990. Uh, Edwin made one big mistake uh, in his, if I remember correctly, it was his very first news conference. He made the remark, I will spend whatever money it takes, even if it takes a million dollars to defeat Sid Yates. And he started making references obliquely, but unmistakably, about Yates' age. Mm -hmm. And those two things, I'm going to spend all this money. uh, And Yates took advantage of that. Uh, He came back. He campaigned. uh, Took him a little while to get his feet. He wasn't used to having to do it. But he did it, and he was a marvelous campaigner when he got going. He was very competitive, even in uh, 80, 81 years old. Uh, the athlete in him came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was in marvelous shape intellectually and physically. Uh, champion, still, still played 18 holes of golf. And he took advantage of Edwin's misstep and said, well, this seat isn't, isn't for purchase. And I've always represented the district, and I'm a proud New Deal liberal. Edwin, where do you stand? And uh, kind of gave lie to the fact that he was too old for the job and just simply said, I've got the experience. Uh, kind of, in a sense, what uh, in 1984, that, that line that Reagan used Very against good. Mondale. Yeah. yeah. Kind of the same type of thing. Yeah. Remember that moment in the debate, uh, 1984, Walter Fritz Mondale, senator, uh, former senator of Minnesota, uh, running against Reagan. And uh, the the moderator asked the question, uh, well, well, what about the age issue? And then and Reagan, who had the, he had the quip ready. Come on, Michael, let's not get ourselves. And he said, well, I will not use my opponent's inexperience against them. And everybody, oh, my God. And that was it. You know, although I would say when uh, Mondale promised to raise taxes, that might have done more damage to his campaign. I think that did a little uh, more uh, And so you mentioned uh, Billy Singer's role. Uh, Billy Singer, of course, you earlier in the show, uh, Michael, you were talking about he ran for mayor in 1975 as independent against Daly. Uh, old man Daly and uh, Yates is like I'm not endorsing you and he endorsed Daly and uh, and then Singer was um, later on became an advisor uh, to Edwin and went go and finish the story but, and, and, and it's um, it, it's part of what you what you wrote about as, as, as well as anybody described it um, yeah, Singer Singer ended up being one of his closest advisors uh, one of one of the managers of his cam- chairman of his campaign and really encouraged him and was just confident that that Yates could could be beaten and uh, we've talked to Bill Ben Bill is, is a friend and uh, th- there there was payback in this that, that Bill was really pushing Edwin to to run against Yates thought he was ready to um, to, to be to be toppled uh, but it all got turned over turned around uh, and uh, the um, 
the Speaker of the House, uh, Tom Foley, came in to campaign for Yates. The Sierra Club, which had never made an endorsement in its 100-year history at that time, uh, came in and made their first endorsement of a congressional candidate to, to, endorse, to endorse Yates. Um, Nancy Pelosi, one of the, the things we, 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 we learned, Nancy Pelosi, who was just, I think, a freshman at that, at that time, um, took Yates to, uh, to California to do uh, a fundraising tour uh, to, to, to raise money against, against Eisendrath. And one of the interesting things that, that George mentioned, when, when Eisendrath said, I'm going to raise a million dollars against Yates, it suddenly turned everything upside down, and now Eisendrath was the the, 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 the spoiled the spoiled young man who didn't respect his elders, who was going to spend an obscene amount of money mm-hmm. against this 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 national figure. Yeah, and Edwin lost. Uh, Sidney Yates went back to Congress, and I'll say this one thing about Edwin Eisendrath: uh, his career did not end there, <laughs> and uh, he's an old friend of mine, and he was instrumental uh, in saving the Sun Times a reader. So I'm gonna give him a shout out that he knows every time I mention his name, I always say that because he put together the uh, consortium of investors that bought uh, the Sun Times and the Reader be- right before the Tribune was ready to snatch it with its little Republican paws. <laughs> and and, and he was also used very. He was very helpful in, in getting us the rights to some of the pictures in the book that the Sun-Times owned. Yeah, so. yeah, that's yeah, very that, very much the gentleman. Yeah. That said, Edwin, you should never run against him. I told you back then you shouldn't have run against and him. Saving the Sun-Times did the city of Chicago an undisputed courtesy. We need, we need two newspapers in this city. Uh, and uh, Edwin deserves an enormous amount of credit for yeah, that. Absolutely. And not only just two newspapers, we need a, a, a newspaper that's a little to the left of the center. You know what I'm saying? This is a Democratic yeah. city, George. The city votes 85% on every single presidential election. If you thought we would have, just think about this for a moment. Just to have one newspaper in this town to be as conservative as the Tribune. I've never read, George, I don't know if you ever read a Chicago Tribune editorial. Let me tell you something. <laughs> okay? They're a little, little right of Reagan. And uh, just the thought that that would be the only editorial voice. And I know newspapers aren't what they used to be, George. I understand yeah. that people like me are like a dying breed that still reads newspapers. But it's they do mean something. They do. And it's very important, I think, that we have a left of center voice. Well, uh, and, and in, the 50, in 50 years, the Tribune never endorsed Sid Yates. That is unbelievable. <laughs> in fact... The, You're kidding. No, not once. Not one single time. I, I Even, thought they might have done it in the 90s. No. Never. Not once. That's, see, people, man, what do you got against the Tribune? That, that, and they wouldn't endorse Schakowsky. No. Okay. No. Sidney Yates left in 1998. He said, that's it. I've had enough. He was in his almost 90. And uh, so, oh my God, (laughs) the seat opens up in Chicago. Everybody's running. All right, here we go. Let's see if he can pull this one. George, for 10 trivia points. Who were the candidates that ran in 1998? J.B. Pritzker, uh-huh. Howard Carroll, and Jan Schakowsky. Dang, I didn't know. He, well, he just wrote the book, but Pritzker's the one that everybody forgets. Yeah. And he finished oh, yeah. third, did he not? He did. He did. Isn't that interesting? The governor of the state of Illinois. That Pritzker, yeah. ladies and gentlemen. Uh, and for 10 trivia points, which 46 Ward Alderman endorsed J.B. Pritzker? 46 Ward Michael Alderman. Dorf knows the answer to this question. This is a shocker. You won't know? <laughs> 46 Ward Alderman. From the city of Chicago. Give up? I, 
Oh. Yes, I the, I could tell he knows the answer. Alderman Helen Schiller yep. enjoys oh, J.B. Pritzker yep. in 1998, and I That's am the right. only person in the world who remembers That's that. That's right. Uh, now uh, all our listeners do, too, as well. Um, all right, so uh, Jan Schakowsky won, and I think that you could say that Jan Schakowsky will be like Sidney R. Yates. It will be her seat until she decides she doesn't want to run for real. Absolutely. Again. And it should be that way. She's a good, she's a very, very good member of Congress. Well, let's uh, close it by talking about Yates' legacy. Do you see uh, Yates' legacy in Congressman, uh, Congresswoman Schakowsky? Do you see some traits, uh, similar traits that uh, uh, that Schakowsky uh, has that uh, Yates had as well? She, she's kept her, her independence. She's been a great liberal. Uh, she has uh, certainly been a supporter of the arts and civil rights and the environment the way, the way Sid Yates was. Mm-hmm. And you as well. I, uh, I couldn't agree more. Uh, Jan uh, is, a, is a fighter. You never question where, what her political ideology is. Uh, and Yates was like that um, different personality, but basically the same. I remember uh, after... Uh, the 1990 census, we were redistricted uh, a little bit more, and Yates and I had lunch with a uh, one of the suburban committeemen, and it was very good. We, we all we were really enjoying it, and at one point, uh, Don Eslick uh, was the committeeman, great guy. Don says to Mr. Yates, "Couldn't you just call yourself a progressive?" And Yates said, Don, I'm a New Deal liberal. This is what I believe. And if I lose my seat because I say that, it's been a good career. I'm very happy with myself. But no, I'm going to continue calling myself a liberal. And I was, I was enormously proud of him because uh, he wasn't he never feared saying that, and it didn't matter where in the district he went. He could go to the Democratic Party of Evanston, which is left of center. <laughs> he yeah. could go to Marty Tucho's 48th yeah. Ward, which was as regular Democratic as you would get, yeah. and he would still. I, I'm a New Deal liberal. I believe in Medicare. Uh, I believe in saving the environment, like Lake Michigan, etc. And he and he, criti- he criticized Bill Clinton to his face in front of all the other dem- Democratic uh, leaders by telling Clinton, "You are doing the wrong thing by going to the center. You've, you're 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 betraying uh, the Democratic Party and and the liberal beliefs of it." Yeah, well, I'm with him on that one, and uh, we'll save this conversation for another time, uh, Michael. Me on the subject of Bill Clinton. Uh, don't get me started on Bill Clinton and what his legacy has been to the Democratic Party, and we're struggling with it today. Um, when was the last time going back to Sydney Yates? Uh, when was the last time you saw him, Michael? He died. When did he die? He he died in uh, October of 2000. October, and, so and just two years after he left office. Yes. And, uh, do you remember the last time you saw him? Uh, it was it was it was in Washington because he wasn't coming back to Chicago very very much, and it was uh, it was at a dinner with uh, with Mary Bain, his uh, his his chief of staff, and he was as 
uh, the, 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 the body was weak, but the mind was as, as sharp as ever. Mm-hmm. Did he, uh, was it one of those things, uh, George, do, uh, sometimes when people give up their long, lifelong jobs, uh, that's it, they're sort of cashing in, or was it just completely, do you think he, it's his body just gave out of it and nothing to his do with body, it? He was confined to a wheelchair. Mm. Uh, one of the last times I saw him was at the Field Museum. They had dedicated one of the pavilions to he and Mrs. Yates. And I hadn't seen him for six, maybe six months uh, after uh, Jan was elected and he retired. So this was probably June or July uh, of 99. uh, And I had become mayor of Skokie and he came in and he was in a wheelchair. I was flabbergasted. We went up to uh, exchange greetings chatted with each other and like mike said the mind was there i mean he was quick as ever he was asking me about local politics in skokie and did i hear about anything going on in the 49th or 50th ward <laughs> stuff like that yeah uh but the the body yeah it, it, uh, it had given out we're talking about uh, Sidney R. Yates, legendary congressman for the north side of Chicago. Uh, he was the congressman for the 9th Congressional District. Oh, gosh, 50 years. Uh, we take away two, 48 years all total. Uh, Michael Dorff and George Van Dusen have written a book, Clear It with Sid, Sidney R. Yates, and 50 Years of President's Pragmatism and Public Service. And folks, if you want to learn a little something about Chicago politics, you want to learn a little something about the history uh, of this city and its political leaders, and also learn how these stories, these themes, these struggles, these conflicts, these harsh debates that politicians have to make, uh, this is not the first time they've been making them. You know what I'm saying? There's nothing new. Michael Dorff, you know this as well as anybody. Uh, the, what Yates went through is sort of a continuation of what many politicians are going through today. So I urge folks to check the book out. All right, you don't want to buy the book? Go get it from a library. There's a lot of branches in Chicago. Do you want to p- promote any readings you're going to do, or, or are we have have we finished with those for the moment anyway? Uh, no, we, we've we've got a number set. We're we're going to be at uh, at the Arts Club on um, uh, J- July July the thirtieth. Um, we're going to be at uh, the University Club. Um, in mid mid August, we'll have those those dates for you, uh, and, and we'll be at Max and Benny's Monday night. <laughs> oh, okay, Max and Benny's. Get yourself a corned beef sandwich and uh, enjoy a conversation about Sydney R. R. Yates. Michael George, thank you so much thank for you. coming. And George Van Dusen, I have to tell you this: I've now spent more time. You're the mayor of Skokie. I've spent more time talking with you than I've had with the last two mayors. Put them together. You put Daly and Rom <laughs> together. I've spent more time talking with you than ever. How about that, huh? Uh, anyway, thanks so much for coming on. I appreciate thank you. it. Take care, everybody. Appreciate it.